Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Wow, thanks for joining me this Tuesday, November 15th. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, is there a lot going on. Whenever you listen to the news at the top of the hour and they give each story one single sentence because they're trying to jam so much in, you know it is a busy, busy day. First, the big news of the day, two, well, they're they're not sure if they're rockets. I've heard some reports call them projectiles. I don't know. Um, But two rockets or projectiles or missiles landed in Poland just across the border with Ukraine. Uh, we are getting reports that two Polish people were killed when these projectiles landed. Um, it's really interesting because nobody publicly at this point in time is talking about where these came from. The um, Department of Defense um, made a statement. uh, It's short and sweet. This is Defense Department of Defense Press Secretary Pat Ryder. Um, This statement was released not too long ago. Listen to what he had to say. Uh, So, as I mentioned, uh, right now, uh, we are aware of the press reporting on this. Uh, We have no information at this time to corroborate those reports, but again, are are taking them seriously and looking into them. And so um, I will make sure that we provide you with any updates as soon as we have them. When it comes to our security commitments uh, and Article 5, we've been crystal clear that we will defend every inch of NATO territory. Okay, to be clear, two projectiles of some kind landed in Poland, just across the Ukrainian border. Two people have been killed there. Nobody is sure where these came from. I mean, obviously, people are pointing fingers at Russia. But one spokesperson earlier said, while everybody thinks it's Russia, it's not out of the question that this, you know, these that whatever fell in Poland could have been um, spent ordnance that was dropped by a Ukrainian fighter jet. So Russia's not saying anything at this point. Ukraine is not saying anything at this point. Though I find it hard to believe the Department of Defense is just learning about this from the media. And, oh gosh, you know, we're just learning about this from reporting. That is hard to believe, especially since there are also reports this morning that Poland's National Security Council is meeting right now as we speak to talk about this. Remember, President Biden said most emphatically to Vladimir Putin that if the Russian war effort so much as crosses a NATO border by an inch or two, that would mobilize NATO to join this conflict. Maybe that's why Russia's not saying anything. But if indeed this was some sort of oversight, some sort of accident on somebody's part, they better start talking pretty fast. 
Poland's National Security Council is meeting. But as of yet this moment, NATO is not officially meeting to discuss what to do about this. You would think. See, this is one of those instances where I know they know a lot more than they're saying. First of all, let's look at what's left from these projectiles. What's the detritus? Unless they completely vaporized on contact, there is some shrapnel. There are shards. There are pieces of these projectiles left. Seems like it would be pretty easy to determine which army they came from. I mean, call me crazy. I'm no military materials expert, but either it's Ukrainian, either it came from a NATO nation, which should be obvious, or it is Soviet, which should also be obvious. My guess is that right now there are frantic behind-the-scenes negotiations taking place where uh, Russian authorities, now this is pure speculation on my part, but I think Russian authorities are in touch with the Polish National Security Council, and they're saying, please don't overreact. It was it was an accident. We didn't mean to do it. It went awry. It went astray. It'll never happen again. You can trust us. This This isn't any kind of aggression on our part. That would be my guess. That would be my guess as to what's going on right now. We'll find out sooner rather than later. This is obviously a story that everybody is going to be on all day today. When there are updates, I will share them with you. So until then, let's look at the other news of the day. Oh, by the way, everyone is declaring Katie Hobbs, the Democrat, the new governor of Arizona, winning over Carrie Lake. Yay! Yay! That's the good news. Um, the bad news is that it does indeed, it's starting to look pretty dicey for Democratic control of the House, even though, as you know, we've already established that we have control of the Senate. We don't even need Raphael Warnock. We, we want to have him in the Senate, but we don't need that for a Democratic majority in the Senate. Interestingly, um, the Washington Post is now saying that there are 206 Democrats confirmed for Congress, 216 Republicans. Those numbers are higher on both ends than what is being reported on CNN. CNN's only going with 204 Democrats, 215 Republicans. Washington Post uh, says it's 206 to 216. Uh, Christopher Buzos, the um, coder, who said just a few days ago that he felt that the Democrats definitely had a path to uh, a majority in the House. He said just this morning that there were two races, congressional races, one in California and one, I believe, in Arizona, that he thought were going to go Dem and they went Republican instead. So he said, I apologize to everyone. I will review my models and do better in 2024. But he is now predicting that the Republicans will have a majority in the House, but that that majority could be as slim as one vote. There are still enough races yet to be called that at least theoretically Democrats could win it, but they would have to 
they would have to win every single one of the congressional races that is still undecided. And that's a long shot that they won't lose at least one of those. So um, Christopher Buzos now predicting that the Republicans may end up with 219 seats in Congress. Kevin McCarthy has already been nominated to be speaker. All this stuff, of course, happens behind closed doors. But even though we didn't take the House, Kevin McCarthy is going to find it almost impossible to do anything with that slim of a majority. Not necessarily because of anything the Democrats do or don't do, but because he has wildly different factions of the Republicans in in Congress. Wildly different factions. And with a one-vote majority... He will pretty much need everybody to get on board with anything he wants to do. And, um, you know, Kevin McCarthy is famous for agreeing to anything, you know, uh, doing which following whichever way the wind blows, taking whatever stand gets him what he wants to get at this moment in time. So what does that mean? Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Freedom Caucus, are they going to be calling the shots? They don't have enough votes to pass anything on their own. What is does that mean that the moderates, the moderate Republicans in the House of Representatives are going to have the power? Any faction with that slim majority, any faction has the possibility of derailing anything that the speaker wants to do. So, we shall see. If we couldn't retain control of the House, giving it to Kevin McCarthy with a one vote or a very slim majority is the next best thing because he has an empire in the House of Representatives that are made up of different groups that hate one another and are going to find it really hard to work together. And frankly, without control of the Senate, anything that they do is going to die anyway. So my prediction is they're not going to do anything. They're going to be an absolute do-nothing Congress. There are behind-the-scenes, behind-closed-doors meetings taking place right now where Mitch McConnell is um, talking to people about still being the minority leader. There has been Rick Scott, when it looked like when Republicans thought they were going to take the Senate, Rick Scott was like, well, you know, maybe Mitch McConnell's day has come and gone. Maybe somebody like me, maybe me, I should be the Speaker of the House. By all accounts, and we'll know once they vote, and they're supposed to vote behind closed doors tomorrow, um, Mitch McConnell seems to have the votes that he needs to continue as minority leader. 
And uh, Nancy Pelosi has said, she said earlier, a few days ago, she said she'd already made up her mind about what she was going to do, whether she was going to retire from Congress or just simply not pursue. She's already won her seat. So whether she was going to maybe not pursue being the speaker again, well, this kind of changes things. Uh, It would not surprise me at all if she not only said that she was no longer going to try to lead the Democrats, she could be the minority leader. But with what just happened with her husband, with the fact that she is 82 years old, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if she announced that not only was she not going to run to be the minority leader in the House, but that she was that she might just resign her seat altogether. She said after her husband was hurt that somebody asked her, you know, does this mean you're going to like rethink things? And she said, I think you have to rethink things. So we'll see what happens on that front as well. Oh, we've got a lot to talk about, and we uh, have a lot to get to. So I'm going to be quiet now. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to be back with more right after this. Take Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive, with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. You know, I just realized Tuesday, November 15th is a great day. We've done an entire first opening segment, and we haven't mentioned Donald Trump once. Um, By all accounts, uh... The betting money is on Donald Trump to throw his hat in the ring to be the first and official Republican to enter the primary to be the president in 2024. That is expected to come from him tonight. He's going to make a big announcement from Mar-a-Lago. Of course, it being Donald Trump, he's playing his cards close to the vest and hasn't necessarily confirmed ahead of time that that's what he's going to do, but that seems to be what people believe he is going to do. Supposedly, every advisor he's got has told him that he should wait till after the Georgia runoff. But maybe he figures since the Dems clearly already have a majority in the Senate and don't even need Georgia, that that's that's no longer such an important race. Who knows what he's thinking? So tonight, um, he is expected to announce that he is officially entering the Republican primary to be the leader in 2024. Supposedly, the thinking goes that, A, this will protect him from prosecution. It shouldn't. And that, B, he will just come out so fast and so hard and so strong that all the other potential people who are making noises about 2024 will just drop into the background. I'm looking at you, Ron DeSantis. Rick Scott's made noises about 2024. 
Glenn Youngkin's name has been bandied about. Um, and I think his thinking is pretty clear, pretty obvious. Nobody believed in me in 2016. Everybody said I couldn't win. Everybody said I was a joke. Everybody said that somebody else would defeat me, that I wouldn't get enough support. La, 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 la. Well, he didn't actually get enough support, if you recall. Hillary Clinton got three million more votes. But because of our delightful electoral college, that wasn't enough. So uh, by all accounts, his thinking is I'll show them. I showed them before. I will show them again. Interestingly, now, supposedly the first time he ran, Melania wasn't keen on it. Um, So that's no different. She apparently is still not keen on it. But this time around, the reports are that Jared and Ivanka have told him that they're done. They want nothing more to do with running and politics. Don Jr. and Eric probably will be right by his side. Um, But Jared and Ivanka saw what a disaster the first time around was. It didn't improve their social standing. If anything, it made them social pariahs. You think there is not a reason why they now live in Florida and New Jersey and not New York? They are not the cool couple. If they ever were the cool couple, they are certainly not the cool couple in New York anymore. And I think that they realize that personally and professionally, they've both paid, well, not so much Jared. He didn't really pay a high price because he got to cut those deals with MBS from Saudi Arabia. The guy who, despite the fact that all of his financial advisors said, don't give Jared any money, he doesn't know what he's doing. MBS said, yeah, you know, I'll give him two or three billion for his new hedge fund. I will. I'll do that. Supposedly, Donald Trump just uh, cut a deal with Oman. Uh, He's going to license his name to a developer there who's going to be doing a hotel and a golf course. So. Trump really, unless I mean, I haven't seen the paperwork, I don't think he will actually have ownership But he is, um, for a fee, God only knows what the fee is, he's going to let them use his name because that's that's such a plus. Before we go any further, uh, Chuck Schumer was on MSNBC and uh, said some really interesting things about the next two years in the Senate, especially if Raphael Warnock wins and the Democrats end up with a 51 seat majority before we move on to other things and other topics i thought this was really interesting and i want to share this with you this is again uh potentially the continuing leader of the senate chuck schumer on msnbc about the 51 seat majority that he is potentially looking at listen to this it's it's not one percent different it's very different for the better For one thing, any time a judge or a nominee to the administration, we've had a lot of good progressive nominees, gets a vote out of committee that's, you know, 10-10, that's tied, delays things for a week. You have to go to the floor, you have to get the time, and you have to bring Kamala Harris there and do what's called a motion to discharge out of committee. 
If we have 51, there'll be no more motions to discharge. It will mean appointees and judges will get appointed much more quickly. And, you know, we've had a great record with judges. We've set the record as of today, actually, 83 new judges, two-thirds women, uh, half people of color, and progressive judges, not just partners in law firms and prosecutors, but legal aid attorneys and immigration lawyers and consumer advocates, things like that. So that'll make that a lot easier. The second thing it does is you can get different bills out of committee much more quickly. Third, we can have subpoena power. Uh, With 50-50, you can't really get subpoena power. So it means it's a lot easier to get things done. And one other thing, when you have 50 senators, and obviously any one senator can say, I'm not voting for it unless I get this, this, or this. When it's 51, it's harder to do. So you put all that together. Plus, that extra seat helps us in 2024 keep the majority. I'm always trying to think ahead. It's it's a world of difference. It is a world of difference. It is going to make the life of Democrats in the Senate so much easier. And do not underestimate the um, getting this majority in the Senate and what it means for judges, not only the federal judges that they are appointing and they are going at a good clip they can go, if they have 51 votes, they'll be able to move judges along even faster. And remember, politicians come and go, but judges stick around forever. It's, if they don't have lifetime terms, they always seem to have really long terms. Donald Trump appointed over 200 judges that we are going to have to live with. Let's try to counteract that. And should anything open up on the Supreme Court... We have a path toward a quick confirmation of a Democrat. Anyway, I am uh, I'm going to stop talking now. We have a lot to get to today. I'm going to have a, a quick interview with ComEd. There's a lot of programs that they have. You know, winter's coming. Heating season's coming. They've got a lot of programs and a way and ways to get help. We're going to talk with one of their vice presidents about that when we come right back after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Erica Borgren is the vice president of customer solutions at ComEd. ComEd, as you know, is a big supporter, a big sponsor here at WCPT, and we really appreciate their support. And I wanted to let you know one of the other things we appreciate are all the different things that they do to help people, especially those who are economically challenged, get through the trying winter months. Erica, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, good afternoon, Joan. Thanks for having me. Um, well, let's get let's get right to it. Um, I have an email that has like 87 different points of things that you guys are doing to make life easier uh, for people over the very challenging winter weather season. Um, why don't you pick the points that you think people would be most interested in or most surprised to know? Oh, sure. I'm sure we can boil it down from 87 to something a little, a little <laughs> simpler for your listeners. Uh, but the truth is we, we do do a host of things, probably more than 87, really focused at ComEd on affordability. It's, it's something that is just 
front and center of our planning activities day in and day out. It's never been more the case that that customers rely on electricity in every aspect of their lives. And so making sure that it's affordable for them is is really key. Um, And so, yes, we do a lot on that. I I think uh, one of the biggest things we do is energy efficiency. It's really helping customers uh, save energy and by doing that, uh, save money. We've we've run our energy efficiency programs uh, at this point since 2008, and and they really... uh, offer a ton of ways for customers to, to add up savings over time. In 2008, we've helped customers save over $7 billion on their, on their um, ComEd bills. And that's a really big number. Yeah. It can be hard to get your, your arms around a number that big. So just from a kind of person standpoint, it means the average customer has saved over $1,700 from these programs. So what we do through these and the options customers have can really be very impactful. That's that's I think something that would surprise a lot of people. You know, you um, you don't expect to hear that a utility company is offering those kinds of savings. Okay, who are the people who qualify for these programs? ComEd customers. That's pretty much all of your list. <laughs> okay, um, that's easy. That's right. So, which is to say that there's something for everyone, right? Um, uh, there's a, probably a best fit for most customers. And as I think of like the average uh, residential customer, uh, the best entry point is probably our home energy savings program uh, where customers can sign up for a home energy assessment. And that's basically, you know what, I'm not sure what to do. I just feel like, uh, you know, it's the winter months. I'm inside more. I want to make sure my home is comfortable. And, well, yeah, and because if you get a professional assessment, they might, might point right. something out that you never thought about doing. They, they probably will. And that's the whole reason we send them. We can, we can send an energy advisor through this program, either virtually uh, or in person into the, into the home to really do a pretty comprehensive look. At and what does that cost? How your home operates. It's free. It's entirely free to ComEd customers. Um, and, and it'll lead to kind of recommendations on how you use your energy, but it will also install through those energy advisors, free and very deeply discounted energy savings products. Everything from, you know, LED light bulbs to a smart thermostat, shower heads or faucet aerators. We, we can help insulate your, your hot water pipes. Um, so, it, you know, the best fit for your home is something that the energy advisors will come up with, but they'll also help do that work. And as they leave, your home will be more energy efficient as a result. And again, it adds up, right? That it was, as we look at what customers save from participating in a free home energy assessment like this, it averages over $125 annually per customer from all those various things that we can install and advise that you do as we as we leave the home. So pretty. How do you how do you uh, get set up for one of these free home energy assessments? The best way to access all of this is is on the comed.com homepage that we have. Um, you know, I just I'm actually looking at it right now on my computer screen. <laughs> if you go to comed.com, you can enter backslash manage bill. Or you can just click on that, or I'm sorry, home savings. Or you can click on just ways to save. It is right there at the top. Like I said, this is front and center for ComEd. So you go to ComEd.com and you're going to see big old ways to save button. You click on that and it's one of the first things you'll see to sign up for a home energy assessment. Now that same um, home energy assessment button, is that also where you would sign up um, to get usage alerts? Through ComEd, you can get 
I think through text or email, you can get ask them to send you a notice when your electricity okay. usage is higher than average or higher than normal. How do you do that, Erica? Yeah, it's from that same main link. So again, I'm comed.com backslash home savings. Uh, you can sign up there for, we call them our high usage alerts. And, and that's really putting you in control as the, as the homeowner or renter or the customer, right? You can tell us as you sign up for that high usage alert, what dollar threshold do you want in there? We can recommend one based on your past usage, right? Or you could say, you know what? I don't want my bill over X. Alert me when I'm about to track over this amount of money per month. And you can tell us, text me or email me, however you want us to tell you. Uh, and then as we'll monitor that over the course of the month, electronically, of course, mm-hmm. and then send that alert if you're trending off so that you don't get surprised. It's not too late by the time that yeah. happens. You can kind of adjust over the course of the month. These are all tools to help put customers kind of in control of their own use and cost. Well, and if and if you're a household that budgets things very carefully, um, it is sometimes disruptive not to know what your utility bill is going to be. Um, so it, so you've got a program, I believe, called budget billing for those people who say, OK, every month I need to know exactly what my expenses are. Um, and even though it's winter and it's going to get cold or it's going to warm up and I don't know what my electric usage is going to be, I can regulate the cost. Explain how that works. Yeah, well, it's, it's again, it's a really important tool. When you're closely managing costs, predictability is really important. And that's exactly what our budget billing um, program offers so that you don't have to say, oh, it's more in the summer or less in the winter, vice versa. We can help smooth that out over the course of the year. So when you sign up for budget billing, um, we'll take a look at your past 12 months worth of energy use and, and kind of use that as a baseline average to set a, a standard monthly bill for you moving forward. And then every six months, we take a look at, okay, what was your actual usage? And you see that over the course of those six months, too, in your bill. Uh, and we kind of reconcile and adjust that moving forward. So it really it takes that month in, month out, up and down, and, and mm-hmm. smooth that out over time to make it really predictable um, and consistent for you. And that's, that's important for a lot of folks. Um, so it's an important tool that we offer. And then at the end of a 12-month cycle, uh, does it, you know, is does it recalibrate? For instance, like if you're paying $100 a month, mm-hmm. but it turns out that each month your actual usage cost would have been 110 right. Do you get at some point, do you say, okay, you know, we got you through the winter. Um, you know, this is now you have to kind of pay this amount to square it away and then we can start again? Yeah, that's that reconciliation that I mentioned. So that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> yeah. So if you, you were not, you're not going to make you pay for more just because we said that's what you used 12 months ago, right? So every six months, we kind of look back and say, okay, how did your actuals in this last six month period mm-hmm. compare to what we had set that average monthly at? And if it's less, great. We can roll that into and, and lower your next six months. You can opt to have that as a one-time credit back to you, but you definitely get it back. You, you pay your actuals. It's just we help smooth that over time, and then we do this periodic reconciliation with really good communication back to the customer. It won't surprise you, right? Um, but it just helps to smooth that out over time. Well, at the beginning of this interview, Erica, I asked you what programs you thought were important. And then I decided to just barrel through and ask you about the ones that I thought were important. So let's circle back, shall we, to that? Yeah, to that first question. What have we not touched on that you think it's really important people know about? 
I really do think that that home energy assessment that we spoke of is is the best biggest thing to know about because it will open the door to what's the next best thing to do, right? Um, it leads to really significant annual savings, and then you'll get kind of follow-on what's next for you in light of what we just did in your home, and then it can lead to really good next things as well. Um, so I, I'm glad that, that you started on maybe the first thing on the list that you have. <laughs> um, it's a pretty important one. But I also think it's just, you know, not everything you can do to control your costs and, and, and have affordability as a customer is a program from ComEd. Sometimes it's just simple actions you can take that are free to all of us, right? And these are actions I take on a sunny day in the winter, you're inside more. Open those blinds up because you can absorb some of that heat in the house and help on, on, and warm up your home. You can move your furniture and your drapes away from your baseboard heaters if that's how your home is heated. So if they're not absorbing the heat, you're improving that in the home. These aren't common programs, but these are tips that are available on our site. They're tips that we would make known to you based on your household in your home energy assessment. But there's a lot of things we can do to kind of take control of how we how we use energy in the home. And that's good for the planet and good for the pocketbook <laughs> in the end. Amen. Amen to both of those. Well, Erica, uh, Erica Borgren is the vice president of customer solutions at ComEd. Erica, thank you so much for um, all you do for WCPT listeners. Appreciate your uh, support. And um, I'm so glad to be able to give some publicity, especially as we as we get into the cold, snowy months uh, when this kind of stuff is so important to people and, you know, people's lives are so busy that unless they hear about it, they might not even think twice about maybe there's a way, a program at ComEd that can make this winter a little bit more tolerable for me and my family. That's right. I really appreciate you helping us to get the word out about it. There are lots of ways to do that. So we appreciate the partnership. Okay. The website again, ComEd.com backslash home savings. ComEd.com backslash home savings. That's exactly right. Yep. Excellent. We can remember that. <laughs> Erica, thank you so much. A pleasure talking to you right, and you, uh, sharing this information. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to be back with politics right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. You know what time it is? Hello? Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, now on WCPT 820. We are still trying to continue to follow up on the two projectiles, projectiles that landed in Poland today just across the Ukrainian border. Neither Ukraine nor Russia has claimed that the material came from them. Two Polish people died uh, Poland's National Security Council is meeting right now to discuss this issue. Um, NATO has not mobilized at this time. Um, we are waiting to get more information as it unfolds. By the way, I told you a little bit earlier that uh, Mitch McConnell was meeting behind closed doors with the senators today, that it looked like he had the votes he needed to continue to be the minority leader. Um, word has come out uh, just in the last um, 
hour or so that apparently behind closed doors, Rick Scott is challenging Mitch McConnell to be the minority leader. I thought it was really interesting, and I, I frankly thought something might be afoot because earlier today, CNN had an interview, one of those hallway ambush interviews with Josh Hawley. Yes, he of the raised fist and the man who ran like a chicken um, on the videotape from January 6th. Josh Hawley told a reporter in no uncertain terms that he thought Mitch McConnell's time was over that he was not going to vote for Mitch McConnell and that he felt it was time for somebody new to lead the Republicans in the Senate. And the reason I thought that was interesting, I mean, Josh Hawley is obviously very far right and has probably not been uh, friends with Mitch McConnell for his entire time in the Senate. But for Josh Hawley, who is not, as we've demonstrated, he's not a brave man. He's not the kind of guy who sticks his neck out for Josh Hawley to say so bluntly this morning that Mitch McConnell's time was over and that he was absolutely not voting for him to lead the Republicans in the Senate going forward. I thought to myself when I heard that, Hmm, what does he know that we don't know? Because He's not the kind of, I mean, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she'll just shoot her mouth off about anything, anywhere, anytime. And there's usually no deeper meaning at all. But when you've got someone who's an abject coward, for him to say something so oomphy, I think that's a word, oomphy, he must have known that Rick Scott either was in the process of making or was going to make a challenge to Mitch McConnell. So, you know, I don't um, I don't have any love for Mitch McConnell. I think that in many ways, like Donald Trump, all Mitch McConnell cares about is power. He doesn't care about people. He doesn't care about the country. He cares about power. I mean, he was one of the main obstacles when Jon Stewart was trying to get the money renewed to pay the medical costs for the 9-11 responders who breathed in so much toxic smoke that they developed all kinds of illnesses, many of them acute respiratory illnesses. And Mitch McConnell wouldn't agree to continue their funding for their medical costs. Mitch McConnell, who as a senator basically has free medical care for life, Mitch McConnell is out for Mitch McConnell. No love lost there. I just wish he were being challenged by somebody with a little bit better character than Rick Scott. I mean, Rick Scott is pretty far right. I don't know. Maybe they deserve it. Maybe they deserve Rick Scott. They've created this party. They didn't back away from the craziness when they had the opportunity to. They didn't take the pain in the short term, so now they're taking the pain in the long term. Maybe they deserve Rick Scott. I don't know. Um, let's go to the phone lines. Dave is calling in from Hoffman Estates. Hey, Dave, how are you? Hey, Joe. Yeah, when you're talking on that um, that missile or the projectiles and that, uh, just reading the story where 
that it hit 15 miles from the Ukrainian border. That's quite an mm. overshot. And that uh, the Polish media recorded about the two people dying and that that it struck where grain was drying in, I don't know how to pronounce the name, Przewod, Wadwald or whatever, a Polish village near the border of Ukraine. And that neighboring Moldova was also affected. They reported massive power outages after strikes knocked out key power line that supplied the small nation. Mm. And, and then President Zelensky said that uh, something like 80 or 85 missiles or whatever these were, you know, had rained down on that, you know, far northwest part of the country. So it's an, it's an, it's, you know, I, I understand that in, in war, sometimes things can go awry because you'd think if Russia really wanted to expand the war out of all those missiles you describe as being a part of this barrage, you'd think more than two of them would have ended up in Poland, if that was truly their intent. Mm-hmm. Unless, unless you know, I don't know, sometimes I think we give Vladimir Putin more credit, unless it's some sort of test, okay, we'll just poke at them and we'll see what they do. And I don't know, I don't think Vladimir Putin wants to start a world war. I really don't think he wants NATO to put boots on the ground, because that would get real ugly real fast. And I think... I think it, I think the powers that be in Russia would be then motivated to depose Putin by any means necessary. I don't think anybody wants uh, to tackle NATO at this point. So I have to believe it was some kind of mistake. And I also believe that despite everybody's the government of Poland and the government of the United States protesting, well, you know, we don't really know what happened. We don't really know when they came. I, I believe that behind the scenes. There is a lot of discussion going on. I mean, if I was part of Putin's military force, I would be on the phone with Poland so fast, telling them that it was an accident, telling them how sorry you were, telling them that it will never happen again. And, you know, you know, you're really, you know, the person who was in charge of that strike is, you know, going to be in big trouble and please don't retaliate. I have to believe, don't you think, Dave, that there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we're not being told about? I don't believe the Department of Defense. So, well, you know, we just found out about it from you guys, from the media. You're the ones who told us about this. Baloney. Baloney. Part of me also, the uh, cynical side is I hope it isn't a false flag thing that that Ukrainians, you know, did it so they could drag us in. I think my guess is... My guess is whoever is responsible for this, it was a mistake Um, because the reports I saw this morning were it's like 80 percent. We think this is Russia messing up, but there is a slim possibility that maybe some spent ordinance that was underneath a Ukrainian plane got, you know, dropped inadvertently, you know. So I think whoever did this, it was a mistake. And I have to believe that, um, that, that I have to believe that they know where this ordinance came from, and that they are, are in conversations with whomever that might be. Yeah, I would think. I mean, you'd find pieces of it still, and but another part is is it a coincidence that this attack happened now the same day that Trump is going <laughs> to, 
you know, uh, presumably announced the, the run and President Biden is out of, out of the country and, you know, in Bali and that. And it's just, you know, you know, I don't know. It's, it's like you <laughs> it's, say, it's, it's got layers and layers and layers that we will probably never know about until 10 years from now when some um, somebody writes a book about it and tells us what was really going on behind the scenes, Dave. That's that seems to way to be the way these things unfold. You know, as much as we as much information as we get it, um, it you know, just like with all the books about Trump, you know, we saw the craziness from the outside. But until insiders started publishing books, we had no idea how bad it was, how insane it was, how crazy it was. Uh, so I'm sure this um, there's going to be a lot of books written about this. Hey, Joe, I'll leave you with this. Uh, a little bit lighthearted, as you know, I don't like to, you know, poke a stick at the guy. But uh, um, finally, you remember back at the time when Donald Trump had one time said something to the effect that you're going to win so much that you're going to be tired of winning. I the Democratic Party. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's beautiful. So, I like that. Cool. Yeah. Uh, somebody, yeah. yeah. Good one, Joan. You too. You too, Dave. Yes. Uh, as Dave uh, pointed out tonight, uh, Donald Trump is speaking from Mar-a-Lago, despite the fact that everybody, <laughs> pretty much everybody alive, has been telling him not to. He has decided, by all accounts, that he is going to declare himself a candidate in 2024. We shall see how that works out. I think the only thing that's been holding him back, I mean, obviously, according to his advisors, he thought, I don't know why Republicans thought this, but he thought there was going to be a red tsunami and he could then make his announcement and look like the man who can make it happen for Republicans everywhere. And it didn't turn out that way. Plus, once he declares that he is officially a candidate, the way he can spend the money he raises changes. Right now, he's got these PACs, and the way they're structured, people who donate money to these PACs are basically just funding Donald Trump's life. He can just take that money, and he can spend it pretty much any way he wants to. But when he's a candidate... There are campaign finance rules. Money you collect can only be spent in certain ways. Now, I know what you're saying. This isn't a guy who cares about breaking laws or breaking rules. That may be true, but I really don't think he wants any more legal trouble at this point in time. I think his plate is full, as they say. So the fact that he's willing to give up the money tells us that he really he really has something to prove. He showed those Republicans once, and he can do it again, not to count him out. We are going to take a break, and when we come back after news, we're going to talk to uh, Democratic lawyer Michael Dorff. We'll see if he thinks that I'm right in my Trump predictions. We'll be back after news. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. We're joined by Michael Dorff, our favorite Democratic lawyer. 
Uh, Michael, how are you? Fine, Joan. How are you? Good. Do you have any interesting, fun plans for Thanksgiving? Uh, I'm going to be working on uh, petitions because we get ready for the uh, the mayoral election and aldermanic elections, and the uh, last day of petition filing is uh, the 28th. <laughs> okay. Well, I will I will raise a glass in your honor, um, a second Please. glass in your honor, uh, as I stuff my face uh, and think about all the poor people who are still working. <laughs> Well, thank you. We, we 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 all thank you very much. They they always set these um these these filing deadlines right around holidays, and uh, this this is one of those that's uh, one of the big ones with uh, for all the municipal elections that are going on. So the filing deadline isn't just for candidates for mayor; it's also for all the aldermanic candidates as well. Right. The, file, the first day of filing is this this coming Monday, the twenty first. Last day of filing is Monday the 28th, and it's, so it's all the aldermen, and, and with all the, uh, the vacancies now, people leaving the city council, there's going to be a lot of candidates uh, running for aldermen in, the, in these open seats, plus you know, at, at least 11, maybe more candidates for mayor. And they have this new, this new uh, position uh, under the, the uh, police reforms uh, called um, police district council members, and uh, every police district now has uh, three vacancies for council members to run. So there will be hundreds of people filing petitions in the next couple of weeks. Wow. So uh, a lot of people are going to be busy through this Thanksgiving holiday. Yeah, and they're, 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 they're still, you, I'm, I'm sure if, you're, if anybody walking around uh, downtown is, is going to be accosted by people with uh, clipboards, clipboards trying to get that, that, that last mm-hmm. number, uh, to get the right number. Yeah. You know, and my feeling is when somebody comes up to me with a clipboard, I almost always sign uh, because I think that even if they're trying to get signatures for a candidate who I don't necessarily support, I think everybody has a right to a shot. Everybody has a right to a campaign and to and to fall short because you didn't get enough signatures seems to me um it seems to me a shame, uh, you know, you should lose in the in the election because of your beliefs or win because of your beliefs, not lose or win because you didn't get enough signatures. At least that's what I think. I don't know. No, I, I agree. There, there are some states you know, that, that allow you to get on the ballot just by, by paying a filing fee. And, and uh, you know, that in that play in California, that makes way too many people on the ballot. But I think you can have something in the middle where um, uh, you, you just have what they call a modicum of support to get on the ballot. And what it's crazy, for instance, for mayor, you need 12,500 signatures uh, to run for the city, to run mayor of the city. Well, if you wanted to run for governor, you only need 5,000 signatures. It so is a crazy system. Proportion. And, Michael, I heard somebody, I can't remember who I was talking with, um, but they said that even though 12,500 is the required number of signatures, most candidates get a minimum of 40,000 signatures so that any duplicates or anybody who uh, signed improperly and will get knocked off, that's I mean, I actually talked to one candidate that was kind of like, huh, you know, when I ran for mayor, I got over 100,000 signatures. I mean, it just it seems it seems like a very high bar. 
It, it, it very much, and we always recommend get at least three times the number of, uh, of signatures required and for, for just the reasons you say. And a lot of people will, will sign petitions even though they're not registered voters because nobody wants to admit that they're not a registered voter. So even in good faith, your uh, candidates are going to file uh, petitions with, with, with uh, large numbers of uh, invalid signatures. Huh. Um what are some of the other reasons why uh, signatures on clipboards get tossed? Well, 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 well some is, 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 is pure, um, uh, pure forgery. Um, my, 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 my favorite one is uh, I, uh, I once had a, uh, a petition, and it was one of those that had 10,000, 20,000 signatures, and it turned out that the, uh, whoever it circulated had listed every Heisman Trophy winner in order and had signed <sighs> their name. As that, <laughs> you know, you just gotta laugh at things, at things like that. But um, uh, there, there are frauds. There, there are, sometimes there is fraud. A lot of times there, there are inadvertent uh, signature errors. A, uh, a husband will will sign both for, for himself and, and his wife. We call those mom and pop signatures. Uh, some sometimes, um, especially in city elections, you can only sign one petition per. Uh, per can per office, so you couldn't sign two uh, petitions for somebody running for alderman, for people running for alderman of uh, the twenty third ward, and that's different than it is in, in primary elections where you can sign as many Democratic petitions or as many Republican petitions as you want. So you really have to put in as, as many signatures as, as you can, recognizing that a bunch are going to be knocked off. Huh, I didn't realize that there were those limitations. Um, um, I mean, I usually it's just, you know, hey, I'm collecting signatures for and I'm like, whatever, give me your clipboard. I'll just <laughs> I'll just I'll just sign it. Um, but I didn't realize that uh, there were some limitations about how many races you could you could sign for. I just assumed you could sign if you were a registered voter, you could sign anybody's petition any time. Um, I bet not a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, I think that's right, and, and it's and it's because there's a distinction because in primary elections, uh, your party members, uh, but it, in mayor and in aldermanic elections, these are technically nonpartisan elections, and there's different laws regarding nonpartisan elections than there are regarding primary elections. Huh. Interesting. There should uh, is there some sort of guidebook? <laughs> is there some sort of website? You know, there's all these judicial guides. Is there a guide to how to sign a petition somewhere? Because I, you know, I'm. How can an average person know this? I've covered politics. I've watched politics. I've reported on politics. I didn't know these some of these rules. Yeah, well, it's you know, that, that's how the the election code is 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 filled with with these types of traps. Uh, now, the Chicago Board of Election Commissioners, uh, which is uh, Chicago Elections, uh, I think, I forget, dot, dot com or dot, oh, God, I apologize, uh, has a really good um, guide to, uh, to the elections. The Illinois State Board of Elections has a very good guide, which really explains who can sign petitions and who can circulate petitions. Huh. We should um, I, sh- I should actually look into that. That would make for an interesting segment for people to to know the rules about this. Um, I do want to ask you to weigh in on what 
Donald Trump is or isn't doing and why he is or isn't doing it. But that's a discussion that's going to take more than a few minutes. So, Michael, let's take a break right now. I'm talking to Michael Dorff. He's a Democratic lawyer. And uh, we're going to talk about um, Donald Trump right after this. Take Jonas Pazito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Michael Dorff is a Democratic lawyer who very sadly is going to be working through the Thanksgiving holiday because there are a, there is a petition deadline coming up. When we went to break, I said that I wanted to ask him about Donald Trump. Um, Michael, as I'm sure you've heard by now, that uh, tonight at Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump is going to speak. He may or may not make an announcement uh, he may or may not have financial or political or emotional reasons for doing so. <laughs> uh, the speculation, of course, is that he's definitely going to throw his hat in the ring, despite supposedly every advisor and even half of his family telling him not to. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I think that's the exact the exact reason why he is going to announce uh, from from everything that's happened over the last five, six years with, with Donald Trump is uh, he is he is the contrarian in chief. And and if everyone is saying to do one thing, he is going to do the other thing. And so, and so I, I absolutely think he's going to run and it's going to be a uh, uh, just a great thing for for us. Even though um, I mean, you know, supposedly Melania was not really on board the first time, but at least the rest of his family was particularly his favorite child, uh, Ivanka Trump and her husband, Jared. They have made uh, statements to the fact that, you know what, they're over it. They don't want to do it again. You know, they're not going to be involved. I know that Donald Trump cares only about Donald Trump. But if anybody were able to make him think twice about something, you'd think it was Jared and Ivanka. Yes, no. Well, certainly more so than Melania, because he we, we've already heard what he thinks about Melania's um, pol- political uh, advice, because he's blaming blaming her for uh, for losing uh, Pennsylvania. So <laughs> supposedly, that's not things. supposedly that story is isn't true. Uh, the story was that Melania told him to endorse Dr. Oz and that he was yelling at her after the fact. But a lot of people have said that they don't believe that that actually really happened. <laughs> Oh, I would hate for that to be fake news, after all. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a book written. There's one of these post-Trump era books that came out supposedly said that in the early stages of the COVID crisis, Melania supposedly was telling him on a regular basis, this is really serious. You need to take this more seriously. You need to do something. One of the post-Trump era books claims that that was a conversation that they had on more than one occasion. So I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, if, if anybody could have could have psychoanalyzed Donald Trump, you would have done it by now. 
uh, you know, who knows? But I, I think he'll announce. Uh, he, he's being uh, the, the DeSantis is just prodding him and prodding him, and and if he if he says he's not going to do it, then uh, it, it's as if he's conceding to DeSantis. A lot of people are speculating that another part of the reason he doesn't want to wait is because he feels that he can do this time around the same thing he did in 2015, prove all the naysayers wrong. Everybody who said he was too stupid, that he was too corrupt, that he was too crazy, that somebody would defeat him in the primary, that he wouldn't ever make it to the general election. And if he did, he certainly wouldn't win. You know, that that the attitude is... I showed them once. I'm going to show them again. Do you think that's part of it? Oh yes, and and I I, I saw it in in the, the papers that that he's he's um uh, it's going to be a much uh, a pared down uh, campaign team this time, much more like the 2016 campaign than than it is this one. I think that the of, of all the many crazy things about Donald Trump, this this idea that on, on one hand he's the greatest thing ever, but on the other hand he's this poor underdog victim, uh, this 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 contra- continual contradiction of uh, he's you know he's the whiner in chief, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, I think that's how he's going to run. I want to play um, a statement that Charlie Sykes made. On MSNBC, Stephanie Rule's uh, 11th hour show Friday night about Donald Trump and his attitude toward this campaign. Andy, give that a play. It basically means I'm not going quietly. Um, I'm going to announce next week. um, I don't care. I don't care who I hurt. If you do not nominate me, I will burn the house down. I will destroy and attack any other Republican that comes against me. And, you know, think about how many uh, decisions Republicans have made over the last six years that you and I have talked about, Stephanie, that have brought us to this moment that they can't they know that they need to move on against him. They know that he is a loser. They know that he is a boat anchor. And yet, how do you get rid of somebody that will not go, that will never acknowledge defeat? And so you watch what he's doing right now, um, how he is splitting even the MAGA base. Now, the one thing that Donald Trump is convinced of, and he may not be wrong, is that he thinks this is going to be a replay of 2015 and 2016, where people say, well, this is outrageous. This is too far. How dare you say that about Ron DeSantis? And you have the donor class and the uh, conservative media turn against him, and he will stare them down. And he is confident that they will cave into him again. He is confident that the Republicans are weak And no matter what they're saying right now about, oh, Trump is yesterday's news, we've moved past him, blah, 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 blah. He knows that if he can make a strong showing that they will all fall into line again. And I don't think he's wrong, Michael. Well, the the, the, the question is, in in 2016, he, he ran against perhaps the Democrats' most unpopular nominee in 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 years um and he had a whole bunch of of independents and moderates who uh who went over to him uh thinking that that he was not as crazy as 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 he did as he was and thinking that well he was saying all this stuff for the primary and he's going to move more toward being a traditional president uh, when he when he when he becomes president and none of that happened uh he he has an amazingly strong conservative base who will be with him no no matter what 
And that may be enough to win the primaries. But I think, as, as, as these midterms have shown, that is just not enough to win a general election. I also think that Charlie Sykes is right in that, if, if, like a toddler with a toy, uh, if he can't have it, he'd rather break it than let somebody else play with it. I I think that if this campaign doesn't go swimmingly for him, and if indeed he appears weak enough that a, a Ron DeSantis gets into the race, I think he will care more about bringing down Ron DeSantis than he will care about defeating a Democratic opponent. Do you think I'm overstating things here? No, 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 I, I don't at all, because that, that's what happened in, in the primaries. He, he had no interest in helping people who might be electable in, in the general election. Uh, he had this litmus test. If, if I will only support people who, who believe my election denier stuff, and uh, I, don't, I don't really care if they are out of the mainstream and if they're not going to win. Uh, and that's 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 all his test is going to be here. If you are not absolutely a true a true MAGA believer, uh, I don't care what happens to you. But, you know, DeSantis also endorsed three or four candidates who lost as well. That doesn't seem to be getting the same kind of coverage. And um, I don't know if you saw the editorial that Karl Rove, who is certainly not what I'd call a middle-of-the-road Republican, wrote in the Wall Street Journal. He was analyzing the Republican, uh, why the Republicans did not have a red wave. And he said, well, you know, it would help if we didn't nominate nuts and knuckleheads, which I thought was kind of a succinct way of saying not the strongest candidates uh, that could have been fielded. Nuts and what would help if we didn't nominate nuts and knuckleheads. Well, and then that and that's where you know, McConnell and, and, and Trump uh, had their had their fight, too. I, I think McConnell would agree with Carol Rove on that one. Well, you know, Donald Trump, though, is saying that it's not his fault that everybody lost. It is Mitch McConnell's fault that all these Republicans lost. And supposedly right now, as we speak in these closed door meetings, Rick Scott is doing his best to uh, become the Senate minority leader. Um, Do you think that Mitch McConnell was damaged by these midterms as well? Well, well, Rick Rick, Rick Scott is is following the, the Trump playbook. Rick Scott was the chairman of the Republican Senate Campaign Committee. He was the one responsible for, for helping to, to recruit candidates and then getting them elected. And he is, 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 is the big loser here. And in, instead of uh, acknowledging, you know, most, most times you, you would slink away if, um, if on a year when you were supposed to have that red wave, all of the people that you were responsible for recruiting ended up losing. Instead, uh, he's 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 blaming it on on McConnell, and there each of them did have separate campaign funds, and they were fighting with each other over uh, who should be putting up money. and And McConnell pulled money away from absolute losing candidates and was starting to give it other places. And Scott was was furious about that. But um, yeah, I I think it. Uh, it's it's a real challenge to McConnell, and I notice you you mentioned uh, Hawley and some of some of those other folks who are, who are backing Scott, but uh, this is this is trying to deflect attention from the fact that Scott had the job of of winning the Senate and totally failed at it. Hmm. 
So the the Donald Trump strategy of, oh, gosh, I just messed up. I better go on the offensive. Yeah, I think that's what it was. I think that's what it is. Wow. You know, there was some really strange spending. I was reading this morning that, you know, supposedly Donald Trump sat on ninety four million dollars at the end where that he could have contributed to um, candidates in the final days. I know there was that big argument. I think it was over Arizona between Mitch McConnell and Peter Thiel, who Peter Thiel, who spent a lot of money in the primary and then didn't want to spend any more. And Mitch was like, well, I'm not spending any money there. This is your race, buddy. You know, your candidate won, you know, reach. It seemed like a very aside from the fact that they had some imperfect candidates. It seemed like Republicans were not of one mind on how to spend their money. And I only point that out because I think in years past, that's one place they've been really effective and really strategic. It's like they know where to spend the money to get the win. They seemed in disarray this time around. Yeah, well, everybody wanted to get their own credit for things. And you had the rich people like Theo who's throwing money in and then uh and then stops uh, because uh, he wants he's got interested in something else. You know, somebody yelled squirrel and off he off he went uh, <laughs> to somewhere else where, where the Republicans had been so good and really played the long game. were in all those state legislatures and, and the Democrats finally caught up this year and and took over a bunch of state legislatures legislatures and the, the Republicans really weren't looking there. They 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 were just fighting each other. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael, we have to take a break. I'm talking to Democratic lawyer Michael Dorf. We are, of course, still analyzing the midterm elections. We will be back with more right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Tune into the Tom Hartman radio program, your home for news, opinion, and insight, right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Democratic lawyer Michael Dorff. We are talking about the midterm elections. And, Michael, I I don't want to get too focused on the fact that Republicans didn't do very well. I personally was not surprised by that because... I kept hearing and reading things in what I thought were mainstream publications that really made my head spin. Things like, well, you know, in June, women were really upset about the Dobbs decision and losing their rights. But, you know, that was in June and they're kind of past it by now. And I was thinking, really, you really think women are past it by now? So I wasn't at all surprised that. Um, with what happened, you know, in in this election. And I think that Democrats got a lot done in Joe Biden's first two years. I think that people were incensed about losing rights under the Republicans. You know, when when Republicans were talking openly about going after Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, I mean, I don't. How anybody could look at the totality of all of that and say, oh, yeah, those Republicans, they're really going to win. 
I just, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it, and I still don't understand why people are like, oh, gosh, we were wrong. Rachel Maddow said something really interesting, Michael. She said that, you know, not only did we get this wrong because of the polling, but in part, the people who reported on this election were reporting about this red wave because Republicans were telling us it was going to happen. Every Republican, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, you know, they were all saying, oh, red tsunami, red tsunami. And I thought it was interesting because you think of reporters as people who take an interviewee's comments and put them into context. Well, of course, you know, Lindsey Graham is going to say there's going to be a red tsunami. It's in his interest to say that. But what she seemed to be saying was, that she felt that rather than look at these comments skeptically, that journalists were hearing it so much that they just absorbed it and started recapitulating it, regurgitating it to their audiences. What do you think about that? Well, I I, I, I think there there is something to be said for conventional wisdom. And you know, there was that that uh, investment uh, disclaimer about past performance is no guarantee of future results. But if you did look at every midterm election over uh, 30, 40, 50 years, in general, the party out of power did have large numbers uh, that, 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 that came up. And when you added that uh, Biden's uh, uh, performance rating was 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 under 50 percent. I think it, it was understandable that people would just assume that it was going to be this way again. But on the other hand, I remember you you and I having this conversation after the Dobbs decision, and 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 we were both saying, will the intensity of of the feelings against the decision and what it meant toward women's right to choose, will it last for four or five months? And and it did, and uh, the the Democrats uh, were were criticized for by a lot of uh, Democratic consultants, but they they put all their chips on the table uh, on 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 the right to choose, and especially those of us who were living here in Chicago and Illinois, uh, there wasn't a uh, a state house or state senate race by a Democrat that wasn't focused. On, on, on right to choose. And, and, and you and I were saying, you know, is if if the election is on crime and the economy, we might lose. If the election is on uh, right to choose and you want Trump again, then then we're going to win. Hmm. And, and, it was, and, and different candidates took it in different ways. There was there was a very interesting piece in the paper the other day about when I get the pronunciation right, with Marie <laughs> Lucenkamp Perez in Washington, who um, was not expected to win as a Democrat in that in that district, and what what she did was she linked um, gun control and abortion restrictions. She said, you know, how is we don't want government to be telling us not to have a gun, and similarly, we don't want government telling us that we can't we can't choose and, and made very much of a libertarian argument. So everybody mm-hmm. took that in, in different ways and, and it ended up being being a very successful strategy. That's really interesting because as somebody else pointed out to me that um, Tony Evers ads in Wisconsin 
were they were the they were these bifurcated ads. You know, it was it would be like Tony Evers um, stands for this, and he's going to make sure crime comes down, and he's under is going to make sure you're not paying more for groceries. And you know, his appointment, Lee Michaels, you know, wants to take away a woman's right to choose. You know, I'm not used to political ads like that because it's usually if Tony is talking about gas prices, then we're going to contrast with what Mr. Michaels thinks about gas prices. But it wasn't that way. It was like Tony's going to do this and he's going to do this and he acknowledges this problem, whereas that guy wants to take away all of a woman's rights. And it was it was pointed out to me as kind of an unusual uh, bifurcated ad. Is that the new trend, Michael? Well, I, I think the the, the 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 polling certainly made it, and and negative ads work, uh, or else we wouldn't be having as, as many negative ads. And uh, it turned out that that attacking somebody for right right to choose was much more than those those ads that were running that said, "Well, this person's going to raise your taxes." Uh-huh. Uh, it, it it worked. Yeah, well, it certainly seems to have worked. Um, you know. I know that, let me see what the Washington Post is, if they've updated it. Uh, there was, um, there was one statistician who, uh, at least a few days ago said that they, they still thought that Democrats had a path to victory in, um, in the House of Representatives, but apparently two races they were counting on going Dem did not go democratic. And so now he's saying that he thinks that there will be, cause there's like, there's a, of all the races that are still not called every single one of them would have to go democratic for the Democrats to pull this out. And that just is probably unlikely, but he was predicting that Kevin McCarthy might have as little as a one vote majority. What will that mean, Michael? Yeah, it, it, it's it's going to be continued chaos for the Republicans. I saw that um, in 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 the vote for McCarthy, um, there were 31 Republicans who voted who voted against him uh, for uh, for the nomination, and some of those 31 are are, uh, are crazies. And <laughs> will, will they be willing to pull literally pull down the house by uh, by not voting for him and keeping him from getting uh, 218 votes? Uh, when uh, when when the the full vote in the house comes comes for speaker, uh, it, and then each one of these people are going to have are going to have a veto. So, um, will the Democrats be able to get any of those, whatever's left of moderate Republicans, to to swing over, uh, in order to get uh, to get any legislation passed? Otherwise, nothing nothing is going to get resolved. Yeah. Um, let's go to the phone lines. Uh, we've got a caller who wants to join our conversation. Steve from the Gold Coast is calling in. Uh, Steve, you're on with me and uh, Democratic lawyer Michael Dorff. Go ahead. Oh, got to turn down your radio, Steve. Um, let's go to the phone lines. So we've got a caller who wants to join our conversation. Steve. Steve is calling in. Uh, Steve, you're on with me and Democratic lawyer Michael Dorff. Go uh, Andy, I think we've got a problem. Hello? Okay. Okay, that was very confusing. I'm sorry, Michael. Um, I don't know if Steve's going to call back or not. Well, let's take a break and we'll get to more right after this. 
Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Democratic lawyer Michael Dorff. We are... uh, Trying to take some phone calls. I think Steve from the Gold Coast has called back and we've got him on the line. Hey, Steve, are you there? You're on with me and Michael. Yes. Uh, Excellent. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> I just wanted to make a couple of points. Uh, and I think two things can be true at the same time. I think if the election were to have been held, say, in July or August, I think we could have actually held the House possibly perhaps picked up another one or two senatorial seats. And that, uh, I, I think that the energy level uh, level within uh, mainstream America, especially within uh, the progressive and democratic communities, uh, in, in the wake of the decision to overturn Roe, I think was much higher. And and then moving forward, people started to uh, consider other things that were just as important, like the economy and so forth, inflation. Um, and, and for some reason, it's unbeknownst to me, but the, the, the Republicans are very successful at getting Americans to believe that they're better at managing the economy. Uh, the, the, the data doesn't support Despite that. the evidence. For some reason. Exactly. Americans buy into this all, all, the, all the time. Correlation versus causal relationship. Um, and, I, and I do think that you're right with regard to where they are, because I think that they, they went uh, from 2016, when nobody believed Donald Trump was going to win and it was an anomaly, to midterms in which they got lambasted. But, of course, they wrote that off as, well, you know, it's the midterm. The party in power loses seats. So, of course, Donald Trump, uh, you know, was going to be expected to lose some seats. Then in 2020, they actually, a lot of them thought that he could win. He lost. And now in 2022, finally it's settling in, I think, with a lot of them. A lot of them who have some degree of common sense or who just went along with the Trumpian movement because that's where the base was. That you know what? Our bread is not buttered here any longer. If we stay with this ideology and these people, you know, that we are going to be a minority party that's going to be relegated to pretty much regional, a regional power in a few places in the West and the South. And that we're not going to be competitive on a national level any longer. And I think that that's where they are. And this is where you're seeing the civil war within the Republican Party starting to emerge. And people who weren't willing to stand up two years ago, you had the Adam Kinzinger's and the Mitt Romney's and a few others and the Liz Cheney's. Now you're starting to see people who are saying uh, openly, you know what? No, this this was the wrong route. We've been on it since 2016. It was the wrong road for this party. And if we stay on it, it's going to be our demise. Well, but here's the argument that a lot of them are worried about, that that everything you said might be perfectly true, but there is still that radical, cultish, almost religious group who follow Donald Trump. And Republicans, I think, are worried that even if they can get the independents and the moderates without that radical base, they can't win. So do you think they're brave enough to take um, a one election, maybe bloodbath, where they finally purge themselves of the radical right to to try to right the ship, because each and every time it seems like they've had an opportunity to do that. They have they've collapsed. They've crumbled. Um, so I don't know well, that they have before, the, the spine to do what you're saying. Well, well, even before the midterms, when you polled not Americans, not all Americans, but actual Republicans, people who self-identify as Republicans, a majority for the first time said they would rather see someone other than Donald Trump as their nominee in 2024. So I think that that, that tells us that they are starting to move in that direction. It doesn't mean that they're all uh, having a change of heart. 
Yeah, as you as you know, rightly so. That there, there's that that core part that of their base that are going to follow Donald Trump. You know, if they're 50, but when they die at 90, they're going to swear that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. But you know, uh, the, the the question is how much of that can can govern their party versus other more common sense Republicans and independents, which is what they need in order to be a party that's in power again. Michael, feel free to jump right in here. Yeah, for for me, the the, the, the discouraging thing for me is that. Um, when when I used to teach advocacy to people, and and one of our, our primary premises was, when when you tr- when you try to convince somebody to do something, you assume that they have high intelligence but low information, and that if you provide them with the facts, they will eventually come around to your to your position. Where where we've gone now is is that there is there are millions of people, millions and millions of people, who will be shown facts and simply not believe them. And even when the Republicans are saying the Republicans are starting to move, move away, are saying, OK, uh, Trump lost us seats in, in he lost us the House in, uh, you know, in 2018. He lost us the Senate in, uh, in 2020. He lost us the special elections in 2021. He lost us the White House in 2020. He is he all he has is a series of losses. There are. 30, 40 million people who say, no, I, I don't believe it. And how do you, how does the Republican Party become a, uh, a legitimate party again if, if, if half of its base uh, refuses to look at truth? You make a really good point, Michael. One of the, um, I think this was from some comedy show. I don't know which comedy show, but, you know, they had a reporter out there and they were talking to people that who had shown up at a Trump rally and they asked him, and I can't remember what the question was. They asked him, they asked the crowd um, about something, you know, does Donald Trump believe X? And everybody was like, oh, no, every person they interviewed. No, no, absolutely not. And then they showed a clip where Donald Trump was saying, I believe in X. And the guy was like, OK, here's Donald Trump saying it. And every single person said that the video was probably a fake, that it was fake news, that they didn't believe it was real because in their head, they knew that Donald Trump didn't support X. And you could show them all the videos in the world of Donald Trump saying I support X. And it was exactly what you say, Michael. Nope, that's not that's probably a fake. I don't know where we go from here. I don't know how we get out of this mess, Michael. It, it, it's going to take many years and, and several, several elections. And, and the, the Republican Party is going to have to either evolve or devolve. But it, it just can't stay the way the way it is now. Yeah. Let's go back to the phone lines. Uh, Richard is calling in from Chicago. Hello, Richard. You're on with me and Democratic lawyer, lawyer Michael Dorff. Well, I hope I can contribute to a very intelligent conversation as usual. And I hope I'll, I'm trying. <laughs> OK. Oh, well, thank you. Know, you. I'm trying to say, you know, no, I really mean that. I'm not just being, uh, you know, whatever. I'm, <laughs> I'm truthful. Um, so you were talking about the Democrats losing and you were also talking about, you know, why the polls were so bad. And it, to me, that ties together uh, with our media. And here's so this, I think, bridges both of those points. Uh, isn't Ohio and four other states, aren't their maps, uh, haven't their maps been judged by their own Supreme Courts? Yes. To be illegal, uh, Ohio yes. in particular. 
And if they were, yeah. And where's the press on this? You know, I tell us to friends of mine who are Democrats and they go, oh, you know, and yep. it blows my mind. I mean, you can get a Pulitzer surprise and talk about how democracy is being subverted. But where are the damn reporters? Where's the media? Well, and, I, and you know, I saw the story in, in a few places, but here was the problem. Uh, the Supreme Court in Ohio said, you can't do that. It's illegal. And then they fought some more. And the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. It's illegal. And you have to fix it by this date, because if you don't fix it by this date, then we're just going to go with what's on the books. So the Republicans had no motivation to fix it because what they wanted the courts had already said, well, if you don't fix by this date, that's going to be this other thing's going to be our fallback. And they were like, great. Sounds good, court. Thanks a lot. So it was really a mess. That was in Ohio. Yeah, I was there for it. I thought the Supreme Court maybe chimed in on this. Well, again, so why are we in the state we are and why and not look at the margin? I mean, who knows what the difference is going to be for the majority in the House? And, and yet all of us sit around here and we talk about, uh, you know, the polls and whatever else. And, and, and there'll be even way. Well, the, the fundamental thing here is these people are subverting democracy and it's like news to most people. And yep. it makes me nuts. And it makes me mad at the Democrats who can't seem to get. I love the Democrats. I'm a Democrat but all my life. Uh, I don't understand why they can't uh, learn from the way Republicans act, uh, but do it with some ethics and why they can't take a. a something like this and 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 use it to beat these uh, these people and stop them from doing what they're doing I, it's, it's so well, we've got a democratic a lawyer democrat. here with us let's ask him <laughs> michael <laughs> well the only thing I, I i would disagree with the question that we should we should blame the press if, i think if, if, if anything in these last five years we we have uh, the, the press has shown why we really need them and and uh, they they did you know those day by day attacks uh, on on all the lies that Trump did and it took them a year to do it where they stopped uh, doing both sides and started saying this is a lie but uh, we had I think better reporting on on the Trump administration and all the dealings that they were doing uh, and more more resources were going to the press I, I think than ever before. So I, what I about the what about the argument that Democrats need to fight like and message like Republicans more than they do? Well, that that that's the uh, to, to, to uh, paraphrase Michelle Obama, right? When they go low, we should go lower. But <laughs> I, I'm not sure if that's who we are. Uh, I think we have to take some of their tactics, but but they have tactics that I think go beyond ethics, go beyond go beyond the law in in, in many cases. And I, I, I don't think we should be going that that far, because otherwise, then what 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 do we stand for? Why are we any different than 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 them? Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, um, on the uh, Colbert show, Michelle Obama explained because Stephen Colbert was like, you know, sometimes you just want to get angry and be angry. And she said, you know, a lot of people have quoted me that, you know, when they go low, we go high. And I guess she said, I'm not saying that you don't feel rage sometimes. What I'm saying is that instead of just feeling this mindless rage, that you take that rage and you do something with it. You find a way to make the rage work for you in a positive way. You 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 accomplish something with that rage. 
And I thought that that was that was really uh, interesting of her to clarify, because, you know, a lot of people were like, you know, it's just turn the other cheek. It's just take whatever they throw at you. And she kind of said that's not really what she was trying to convey with that, which kind of makes me feel better, because sometimes I just simply can't go high. Michael, I just can't. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's okay to be mad. I think it is. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Um. Um, on this, um, how many candidates do you think we're going to have by February 28th when we when Chicagoans vote for the next mayor? Any idea? I think there's going to be a lot more or do you think we've topped out? Um, it's, it's getting close. People who haven't haven't announced yet who might might still be around. I, I think it will top out at, at, at 11, maybe 12 at the top. OK. Do you think Pat Quinn's going to jump in or not? Don't you think maybe he would have by now? He, he he would have he would have by now, but um, you know, he's he's famous for Sunday press conferences. So if he gets past <laughs> Sunday, I, I think he's out of it. Okay, all right. There was also some talk that uh, Melissa Conyers Irvin, the city treasurer, might be contemplating a run. Any news on that front that you've heard? Uh, no, that, I, I I haven't heard it at all. That that would really surprise me because I I, I think. Um, uh, I think her husband, uh, Alderman Irvin, has become an ally of the mayor. So I'd be really surprised about that. Okay. And um, I know Tom Tunney said he was not going to be running, but what about Brian Hopkins? He was supposedly flirting. The second ward alderman was flirting with a run, too. It's getting late, and I, I'm not sure what, what, what his um, what his avenue is, what, what his base of support is that would be different from, from the others. Mm-hmm. Michael, it is a delight talking to you. I'm so sorry you have to work through the Thanksgiving holiday. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We've been talking a lot about the midterm elections and how Democrats did so much better than anybody predicted, except, of course, for me. But that's another story for another time. One of... If not the biggest success story of the night had to be Michigan. Um, I know that the mainstream media was like, oh, Ron DeSantis had a big win. Well, you know what? You want to talk about a big win? You have to look at the state of Michigan. Michigan kept Governor Whit- Gretchen Whitmer, the Democrat, for governor. Michigan now has a has a Democratic state house. The state reps are mostly Democrat. The state senators are mostly Democratic. The Secretary of State has gone Democratic. Michigan is a real success story, an amazing success story. And one of the reasons why uh, is because of Indivisible. Workers from Indivisible, especially Indivisible Chicago, um, because they did a lot of volunteering in Michigan. The Michigan coordinator for Indivisible is Bill Mangabeer, and he joins us now. Bill, welcome to the program. Thanks, John. So, when did Indivisible decided that there was a it, that Michigan was in play, and that a strategy needed to be developed? How early in the process did that happen? Um, you know, Joan. I think really we have to go back to uh, to 2019. Um, actually, when we were looking at the 2020 presidential election and developed our three states, one mission strategy, uh, basically with the uh, um, the observation that 
you know, Indivisible Chicago, we are ideally positioned uh, to have an impact uh, on the national stage because we are within driving distance of two of the blue wall battleground swing states, Michigan and Wisconsin. And so we actually started developing the strategy in 2019. Uh, you know, we were played our part to help flip Michigan and Wisconsin blue in 2020. And 2022 is, I think, just an outgrowth of what we started in 2019. And I would also add that it um, it was built. Our strategy was built with an eye toward um, impacting 2024. So that, that's really where it came from. So um, this is a strategy that is continuing yeah, I think we're uh, fully expecting that we are going to be, um, you know, out in the field again in, in 2024, uh, fighting in both states to uh, continue to reinforce the blue wall and, um, you know, to, to help candidates uh, continue to win. And, you know, as you said, as you just said, you know, in Michigan, uh, we had a, a really, a really good night or a good week, I guess, yeah. that all of the results were uh, came in. You know, we won the uh, helped uh, contribute to winning the three statewide races: the governor, the secretary of state, and the attorney general, re-electing three amazing women uh, Democratic leaders. Um, you're obviously, uh, I think, your listeners all know that uh, Proposal Three um, uh, went through. Um, you know, was approved by the voters to enshrine abortion rights in the Michigan Constitution as well as Proposal 2, which protects early and early voting and absentee voting. Um, we also concentrated our efforts on the three toss-up congressional seats, uh, doing phone banking into the districts of Dan Kildee, Alyssa Slotkin, and Hillary Skolton, all of whom won. Um, you know, we uh, are, are phone bankers. Every Monday, we would we would call Michigan voters and um, and talk to them about those candidates as well as uh, Gretchen Whitmer. Um, and then, as you also mentioned, um, I think uh, a bit unexpectedly, um, the Democrats managed to flip both houses of the state legislature. Uh, both the Senate and the uh, and the, the House will be in Democratic uh, hands come January. Um, and we also worked a lot on the ground. We uh, canvassed up in southwest Michigan in St. Joseph. Our point of entry there was a state uh, rep candidate, Joey Andrews, uh, who was in a really tough race. Uh, we knocked a lot of doors um, for Joey, and he was one of the uh, he was one of the House Democratic House candidates that won. Uh, that gave the um, that gave the the Democrats the majority in the in the state house. He won by you know 650 votes. So you know again. It just shows once once more that every call, every every door, you know, every voter counts. Yeah. Um, in addition to, to uh, Joey Andrews, were there other candidates? Did I mean? Did you look at the um, that the roster and say, okay, here's where we want to focus our efforts? Did you guys uh, f- come out for every uh, D on the ballot? How did how did you organize yourselves, and what races did you decide to focus on? Um, you know, we we uh, the Indivisible Chicago Elections Committee. Uh, we looked at um, the races in all three states, and we had developed a priority list that was pretty clear. And that you know, as we went into the final days, um, uh, it turned out to be you know we didn't make any changes to it. We knew where we needed to be. We needed to be in Wisconsin for the Tony Evers and uh, Mandela Barnes races. 
Uh, Gretchen Whitmer was one of our top priorities, making sure that she got reelected. Um, and then, the, uh, as I mentioned, the three toss-up congressional races, uh, Alyssa Slotkin, Dan Kildee, and um, Hillary Skolton, who uh, she flipped the seat in the Grand Rapids area, Kent County and Grand Rapids, which has traditionally been a Republican stronghold. I mean, that was where Gerald Ford came out of. Huh. Uh, that has become that has been trending blue. And um, the uh, the incumbent, Peter Meyer, was one of the 10 uh, Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. He was defeated in the primary by one of these just bonkers extremist um, right wing candidates that the Republicans nominated uh, who knocked off Peter Meyer. And uh, the the seat, um, which had been redrawn by the Independent Redistricting Commission, um, had already been rated a, uh, a Biden, um, you know, plus uh, plus five seat. And when uh, the extremist candidate won the primary, um, uh, that moved that seat into a lean Democratic seat. Um, so we were we were able to uh, to make some calls on behalf of Hillary Scolton, who had run against Peter Meyer in 2020 and come up just short. This time, um, you know, we just lent our, our shoulder to the wheel. And uh, and she was uh, she actually ran away with uh, the election. She she beat him by 12 points. How many indivisibles from Chicago actually uh, traveled to Michigan? Because I know that, you know, you can postcard and you can phone bank from from the comfort of your own home. Um, but that, you know, to actually make the commitment to go to another state is a pretty big deal. What kind of uh, numbers w- participated in all of your efforts? Well, it was it, going into Michigan um, this time, it was actually really a conscious uh, decision that the elections committee made. You know, we said, Michigan, we want to keep our hand in. We want to stay sharp. We want to maintain our relationships. We want to be on the ground there because we don't want to just start all over again in 2024. You know, let's use this as a tune-up for, you know, in addition to trying to contribute to the 2022 elections, let's let's stay sharp for 24. But we really poured a lot more of our canvassers up into Wisconsin because I think um, as we saw the, the, the primary, the Republican primary unfold in Michigan, uh, I think our, our reading on it was that Gretchen Whitmer was probably going to be in better shape um, in this election and that the real fight was going to be in Wisconsin, uh, keeping Tony Evers in office and trying to knock off uh, Ron Johnson. Um, so we had more people actually on the ground going up to Wisconsin. I went up a, a few times as well in Kansas, but um, the, the group, uh, we probably had a couple dozen of us on the ground in Michigan over the last few months, uh, mainly working along the, uh, the southwest, in the southwest uh, corner of the state. And um, when you mention the distance, you know, it's kind of interesting about that. It takes, um, you know, it's an hour and a half drive from downtown Chicago to St. Joseph, Michigan, which is, was kind of, is kind of our headquarters spot up there where we launch a lot of our canvassing. Uh, you know, it's a similar distance to drive up to Milwaukee. It's not a lot farther to get out to Jefferson County, Wisconsin, which is where we had a number of people going up doing deep canvassing for, for several months. Um, also, you know, we canvassed for Lauren Underwood and for Sean Caston. You know, their districts are a little bit further, you know, geographically as the crow flies, um, you know, they're closer. But getting to them, you know, through the traffic, it's going to be an hour, hour and a half to get out there anyway. You spend a couple of hours out there knocking doors and, uh, you know, then it's a drive back. So it's it's kind of equidistant, all of our, our main battlefields. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> But it um, 
it really takes a commitment. And a lot of people who are Democrats and want to support Democratic candidates are still um, intimidated by the idea of doing something like this. Um, did you have a lot of newbies doing this? And, and if so, how did you train them? Yeah, we always um, uh, welcome uh, first-time canvassers. And um, what we do is we, we start the training process with them uh, early on. We'll sometimes uh, we hold uh, Zoom calls uh, a couple of days before just to get them used to using the minivan technology that we use on our phones to walk, to record the, the, the results of our conversations with the voters. Uh, we try to team them up, you know, if people are comfortable driving in, in cars together, team them up on the way up there with a veteran canvasser. Uh, on the ground, you know, there's always a briefing uh, before we all go out to start hitting the doors. And then we also uh, pair people up with a veteran canvasser, um, you know, at least for the first few doors. And I can I can tell you, you know, time and again, my experience has been I go out with somebody who's out there for the first time knocking doors. You know, we hit the first three or four doors. You know, they listen to, you know, how I, I start the conversation up with the voter and they just they turn to me at that point and say, I got this bill. You know, you go ahead and grab that next street. And let's let's double the number of doors that we're going to hit today. Well, real quickly before we go to break, when you knock on a door and somebody opens it, what is your opening line? Um, I, I start out by introducing myself first. I've got their name uh, in front of me from the registration list, but I like to, you know, I think it's polite to introduce myself first. And I say, you know, is this, uh, all right, is this, is this Joan? Are you Joan? Um, you know, I'm Bill. Are you Joan? And, um, you know, I'm here doing some work uh, today for uh, Tony Evers and Mandela Barnes as we lead up to the connection uh, to the election. And I just wanted to talk to you about some of the issues that are important to us all. And, uh, you know, and try to get into the conversation with people. You know, sometimes it's a short conversation. They say, great, I'm fully on board. Sometimes you get the opposite reaction saying, I am voting Republican, you know, and you wish them a nice day and move on to the next door. But for those folks that are independent, those are the ones that we would like to get into a conversation with and maybe try to identify some some points of common interest. And there mm-hmm. we want to do more listening. You know, what are the important issues to you this year? Yeah. Uh, when I've talked to candidates um, who go door to door and I and I say, you know, well, what is it? You know, what is it you want to tell people? And they go, no, the most Im- the most effective door to door canvassing is listening, not telling people what you think or what you want to do. Um, we need to take a break, Bill. I'm talking to Bill Mengabir. He is with Indivisible Chicago. He was in charge of the volunteer effort in the state of Michigan, obviously a very successful volunteer effort. We're going to be back with more right after this. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Bill Mengabir, who was in charge of the Michigan volunteer effort that Indivisible Chicago sent to that state. Bill, if you had to give me one or two reasons why Michigan went as as solidly democratic as it did, what would they be? Um, You know, Joan, I think a lot of it had to do, as uh, Mitch McConnell would say, with candidate quality um, and the Republican primary voters propensity to nominate 
um, really extreme candidates for a lot of the, the seats that were, were up. But I guess I would point to, I think, of uh, two people that I think had a, a overriding influence in the results uh, this time. One was a young woman named Katie Fahey, who in 2017 uh, put a note on Facebook, and she said, uh, I think we ought to do something about redistricting and gerrymandering. You know, anybody interested? And, you know, she just put it out there kind of as a lark. The next morning she woke up, she had 700 messages on Facebook. Wow. And that started a, a movement called Voters Not Politicians that led to the passage in 2018 of a Michigan ballot initiative approved overwhelmingly by the voters uh, to um, put redistricting in the hands of an independent commission. And they did their work this year and basically undid the Republican gerrymandering in Michigan. Um, and so as a result, there were many more competitive battlefields. And that, I think, was a big contributor to the result. The other person that I think had an overriding influence was Samuel Alito. Uh, really? I, With his... Uh... <laughs> I, think the, I think the Dodds decision absolutely lit a fire under voters across the country, but including in Michigan. And in Michigan, voters identified abortion as the number one issue uh, that got them to vote this year. And let's compare and contrast um, Michigan and Wisconsin. Um, We certainly had, you know, Tony Evers, a huge success in Wisconsin, but, you know, um, Mandela Barnes came up short. A lot of people point to the fact that very close to the end of that competition, Republicans really started pouring money into the race, particularly the Uline family, the billionaires from Illinois who uh, like to support far-right candidates. What do you think the difference was between the success in Michigan and the incomplete success in Wisconsin? Um, well, I think the... Um you know, one of the things, one of the differences, and this this doesn't really bear on the statewide races, but it does bear on um, relative political power, and that is that in Wisconsin, gerrymandering is alive and well, or alive and bad. Um, and you know, I mean, the results of the state legislative elections in Wisconsin it was it's basically still a fifty-fifty state. Uh, but the Republicans um, uh, control 70% of the seats in the legislature because of the gerrymandering. And I would um, commend to your your listeners, if they haven't already seen it, to uh, to go rent the film. I think it costs a dollar. You can get it for for free on Hulu with a you know with a, uh, a trial subscription. The movie Slay the Dragon, and Slay the Dragon tells the story of gerrymandering in two states, and those states happen to be Michigan and Wisconsin, and one tells the story about Katie Fahey and her movement there that resulted in the Independent Redistricting Commission, and in Wisconsin, the moral of the story of the film is it's not over in Wisconsin. We still have work to do up there. So I think part of that, this Republican political power um, you know, is something that they they are not going to let go of easily. You know, they did pour a lot of money in. There was a lot of national money that came into that race as well. Um, you know, and it, it's tough to knock off an incumbent U.S. Yeah. senator. Uh, you know, even one that we all think is a bozo like Ron Johnson. Would you say money is the deciding factor? Because everybody's, you know, uh, armchair, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking what the Republicans did wrong. And it's like, well, you know, Trump had all this money he was sitting on and Mitch McConnell didn't allocate the funds well. And 
you know, the mega donors like Peter Thiel's, you know, stopped funding the candidates they'd supported in the primaries. I, I, I do think that last minute ads have an outsize effect, but I, I think it's sad that it seems like money in so many races ends up being the determining factor. Do you, do you think, do you see it a different way? No, I, I think, you know, money and, and particularly dark money um, have an inordinate uh, influence and are a, an undermining um, an undermining influence in our democratic processes. Uh, so I, I think that that it does play a major role. Um, you know, I think, though, that uh, voters are, you know, we're we're complex characters. You know, a lot of different things go into our thinking. Um, and influence, you know, how it is that we, we ultimately vote. And I guess part of the, the, you know, the conclusion that I draw away from, uh, you know, from this year's experience is you just have to keep working. You have to keep pushing. And a little by little, you know, you, you reach people. You, you know, we saw the rejection nationwide of people to the extremist election-denying um, position. You know, that message ultimately got through. The pundits were all, oh, no, it's all about inflation and, and crime, and that's what's going to decide the election, and the Republicans are going to have their, their red wave. Uh, you know, that didn't happen. And a lot of that was just the hard work that people do day in, day out on the ground. And it may have been a door knock. It may have been a phone call. It may have been an advertisement. You know, it may have been a, uh, a coffee clutch conversation. But to me, it's, you know, the message is you just never give up. You keep on pushing, and we're going to keep on pushing to 2024. And in addition to the money that was spent and in addition to the door knocking, let's face it, in many races, because of this place where the Republican Party finds it, uh, they had a lot of, oh, let's see, can I think of a way to say this that isn't too awful? Hmm. They had a lot of less than optimal candidates, shall we say, Bill? Yeah, yeah, I think that, that that's true. You know, I mean, in, in Michigan, um, uh, you know, the two, the two vaunted top two gubernatorial candidates uh, got knocked off the ballot before the Republican primary because uh, they'd hired these firms to circulate the petitions, and there were there were you know, uh, thousands of forged signatures on the petitions, and they both got knocked off the ballot. You know, so they wound up um, with uh, Tudor Dixon winning the primary, who is, uh, you know, a, a former uh, radio show host, um, you know, no offense intended, and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, who who took some, you know, really extremist positions. You know, she was the, <clears throat> the candidate who said that she... She thought that um, in response to a question, you know, what do you think about the, the, the rape exception in for abortion? Uh, you know, if a 14 year old uh, uh, girl is, is raped, she said, well, I think that's a, a good opportunity for healing, um, you know, <laughs> for her to, to carry the, the pregnancy to term. So, you know, we had these these candidates that the Republicans nominated that were just um, were were really extreme. And, you know, I mean, I don't agree with McConnell on 99 percent of the things that come out of his mouth. But when he said candidate quality matters uh, in these statewide races, I think he was right. Yeah, I think so, too. 
Bill, thank you for the wonderful work you did in Michigan. Thank you for being a part of Indivisible Chicago, one, I, one of the best Indivisibles anywhere in the country. Uh, Bill Mangabeer, uh, thank you for joining us and uh, talking about this with us, Bill. Thanks so much, Joan. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. Live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. I've got a few more things I want to share with you before we wrap things up today. Um, I'll open up the phone lines in case you want to join the conversation, 773-763-9278. And uh, remember, uh, you can text me on that number. And while I'm thinking of it, before I forget, this uh, Friday from uh, from uh, from uh, from 4 to 4.30, I'm going to be talking to Shelly Young of the chopping block and we're going to do kind of a fun thing we're going to do a turkey hotline a thanksgiving hotline so if you have any questions about thanksgiving food or thanksgiving turkeys or how to cook anything or maybe you want some new ideas of some things to cook that you never made before feel free to um you know all this week i'm going to be um making sure that i check the text line and that I've created a document where any questions come in, I'm going to copy them over. So uh, any of your Thanksgiving questions for our impromptu WCPT Turkey Hotline on Friday, uh, send me a note. Now, back to politics. There's some really interesting stuff that I didn't have a chance to share with you um, earlier. And one of the things that was... Um, I thought really good. There was a discussion on Morning Joe. That's the um, early morning talk show on MSNBC. And um, they were getting a report and having a discussion with this reporter, Von Hilliard, who has spent the last year and a half covering Kerry Lake. Remember in Arizona, that race that came down to the wire Katie Hobbs, Democratic candidate for governor of Arizona versus Carrie Lake, Republican candidate for governor. Katie Hobbs criticized for not being a very good candidate by her own admission. She hates campaigning. She refused to do a debate. Uh, she was not she was a good person to be governor. But not she's no Bill Clinton, who, you know, who loves to work the rope line and shake hands with people and have those conversations. That's not Katie Hobb. So Democrats were a little bit worried about her from that perspective. And Carrie Lake, the former TV anchor. Who, by all accounts, not that long ago, was um, pretty much a Democrat in all of her positions and her outlooks. But that wasn't going to get her elected governor. So she revamped her whole image. She revamped all the things she believes in, which were apparently open for uh, discussion and reworking. She also kind of got made fun of a lot because whenever she did a television appearance, she was always in soft focus, noticeably so. And it was um, it was kind of weird. Anyway, they were talking about this race for governor Katie Hobbs. The race has been called for her. The Democrats win. 
It um, was a long, painful vote count, but Katie Hobbs is the winner. And um, like I said, this reporter who's been covering her for like the last year and a half kind of broke into the scripted conversation and just asked Joe and Mika if he could, you know, guys, can I just can I just say some things about this race? Could I just talk about this? And they were kind of like, oh, you know. Sure, Vaughn, you know, go ahead. (laughs) The guy, shall I say, he had a lot to get off his chest. Listen to this. Look, I covered Kerry Lake for the better part of the last year and a half here. And I think it was perhaps fitting to be here across from Mar-a-Lago today. I finally flew yesterday from Arizona here. And essentially, though, I felt like it was covering Donald Trump's campaign of 2024, but in Arizona over the last year. She predicated her campaign on trying to sell the big lie and trying to sell the conspiracy theories. When she wonders how she lost this race, look at it. This is the third election cycle in a row in which Arizonans rejected Trump In the final week of her campaign, who did she campaign alongside? She campaigned alongside Steve Bannon. She campaigned alongside one of the chief promoters of Pizzagate. She campaigned alongside an individual who promoted the notion of the war on white people. She campaigned alongside State Senator Wendy Rogers, who just earlier this year was here in Florida speaking at a white nationalist conference, somebody who frequently spews anti-Semitism. This is an individual who just last week called her Democratic opponent a pervert. This is an individual who suggested there should be perp walks for elections officials, criminal charges against individuals who oversaw COVID response in 2020 in Arizona. This is an individual who's celebrating putting a dagger into the quote, the McCain machine. She asserted that Cindy McCain wants to end America. She called Mike Lindell, one of the great patriots of our time. She said Dinesh D'Souza is one of the greatest patriots in America. She suggested Paul Gosar was the kind of lawmaker our founding fathers envisioned. She called the media the right hand of the devil, the scourge of the earth. If that doesn't sound like Donald Trump. I don't know what does. And ultimately, the big question was, was she going to be able to make that sell here? And the answer is no, according to Arizona voters. And when you look at that slate of election deniers from Tudor Dixon to Tim Michaels uh, to uh, Jim Marchant in Nevada to Mark Fincham, she was the latest one to fall, essentially making it a clean sweep of those not only election denier gubernatorial candidates and secretary of state candidates. And now Donald Trump is going to go and try to run on the very message that all these folks lost. Did you get the feeling that Vaughn had a lot of stuff bottled up? <laughs> I kind of think that Mika and uh, and and Joe were kind of just like, uh, you know, is this guy ever going to stop? And then this, and then this, and then this. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes uh, it's hard when you're a reporter to bottle all this stuff up. But one thing, if I may pick a little bit of a nit with uh, Vaughn Hilliard, yes, Katie Hobbs won. Yes, Carrie Lake lost. But it wasn't like Katie Hobbs buried Carrie Lake. You know, it wasn't like for every vote Carrie Lake got, Katie Hobbs got two. Carrie Lake was all those things and took all of those really rancid positions and Carrie Lake still came close to winning in Arizona. That to me is frightening. What does that say? Were people voting for her 
because they believed the big lie? Were they voting for her because they thought gen- journalists are the scum of the earth? I mean, she said, I'm, if I'm, when I'm governor, I am going to be your worst nightmare. She said that to the pack of journalists that was covering her. And the woman used to come from that world. Did people just vote for Carrie Lake because they're Republicans and any Republican is better than a Democrat? That's what I don't know. And that's what bothers me because Carrie Lake said all those horrible things. Carrie Lake believed in the big lie. Anybody who spent 10 minutes looking into her backstory knows that Carrie Lake used to be a completely different person who believed completely different things. So did all of her ideas change? Or did she just look at the political landscape and say, like Donald Trump did in 2014, apparently, this is what I have to say to win. These are the positions I have to espouse to win. doesn't matter if I believe it or not. doesn't matter. Winning is everything. Yes, Katie Hobbs won. But she didn't bury Carrie Lake. It was a near thing. And as bad as Carrie Lake was, that scares me that she got as many votes as she did. You know, we have not turned the page from Trump or Trumpism. And I think what happened here in this election definitely proves it. Um, I do have some sound from when Katie Hobbs um, talked to her um, supporters after she was declared the winner. I'm going to take a break and share that with you when we come right back. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We were talking about the election of Katie Hobbs as Arizona's next governor. Um, We heard from uh, Vaughn Hilliard about uh, what it's like to uh, cover Carrie Lake. Uh, He's been with her for a year and a half, and... Vaughn had a lot of things that were kind of bottled up he needed to share with people. Um, but Katie Hobbs, who by all accounts was not um, interested in doing a lot of campaigning, she won anyway, uh, she did speak to her supporters after she was declared the victor. I want to share, it's a little bit, you know, you, you kind of hear some room noise here. It's not, um, it's not um, a mic that's real close to her. But I, I think this is important for setting the tone of who she is and what what's going to happen in Arizona. Listen to this. Good morning, Arizona. Last night, our race was officially called, and I am honored to stand before you as governor-elect Katie Hobbs. I also want to congratulate Senator Mark Kelly on his re-election. Democracy. 
The system of government that made America the best and most prosperous country in the history of the world. And, you know, we've been spending a lot of time today talking about Donald Trump, who is expected to make his big announcement tonight from Mar-a-Lago. I'm going to be in the race for president. I'm going to forego all the extra money I could scam off of people because I want to get into this race before Merrick Garland has a chance to indict me. How's that? How's that for a subtext? Anyway, um, we're, we've been talking a lot about Trump. We've been talking a lot about what Karl Rove called the nuts and knuckleheads that Republicans put on ballots around the country and how they didn't do very well despite Donald Trump's support. But let's not overlook the effectiveness of Joe Biden. Yes, he still struggles to speak. You can tell he's still working around that stutter. And it makes him a less than dynamic speaker. He's no Barack Obama. But he has gotten a lot done. He's gotten bills passed that nobody said he could get done. And more than one of them. Build back better the infrastructure, the chips. And he hasn't been. He said that he hopes that around that after Thanksgiving, he and Jill can take a few days off for a vacation. I say well earned. He has done a lot. And Elizabeth Warren was recently interviewed on cable news. And with the conversation started with Trump, but she said, you know, let's not overlook what President Biden has accomplished. Let's not make this all about the nuts and knuckleheads from the Republican Party. We have a lot to talk about. We have a lot to be proud of. And a lot of that is because of what Joe Biden has accomplished in two short years. I want to share with you right now what Elizabeth Biden or Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren had to say about Joe Biden. Listen to this. Look, Donald Trump. With his preening and his uh, his selection of truly awful candidates, didn't do his party any favors. But this victory belongs to Joe Biden. It belongs to Joe Biden and the Democrats who got out there and fought for working people. The things we did were important and popular. Remember, right after Joe Biden was sworn in, all of the economists and the pundits in his ear who were saying, go slow, go small, Joe Biden didn't listen to them. And in fact, he went big. He went big on vaccinations. He went big on testing. But he also went big on helping people who were still unemployed, on setting America working families up so they could manage the choppy waters in the economy following the the pandemic. And then with the Inflation Reduction Act, we delivered again and delivered big. You know, $35 cap on insulin. Uh, There'll be a cap of $2,000 on what seniors uh, spend on prescription drugs. We're cutting the cost of utilities, cutting the cost of of insurance payments, and forcing giant corporations that have been paying nothing to pay a 15 percent minimum corporate tax. Every one of those things is popular. The Republicans, every single one of them, voted against every provision I just described. The president's leadership put us in a position, every candidate, up and down the ballot, to talk about what Democrats fight for and what we deliver on. And by doing that, we were able to address the values and 
the economic security of people across this country. And it sure paid off. It paid off at historic levels. Let us not forget the overarching message. Democrats deliver. Democrats are the ones who make people's lives better. Democrats are the one who are who are trying to raise minimum wages across the country. Democrats are the one who are trying to make sure that government contracts go to union workers. That is not what the Republican Party wants. We've got to dispel this myth that somehow Republicans are good for the economy. Republicans are good for the economy of rich people. If you're a one percenter, then, you know, then maybe the Republican Party is good for you. The only thing, remember, the only legislation that Donald Trump accomplished was a tax cut for the wealthy. He didn't get health care done. He didn't get infrastructure done. He didn't get anything else done. Democrats are the ones that make people's lives better. And that's the message we have to make sure that everybody understands. Speaking of President Biden, um, we've been following the situation in Poland where one or two what are described as missiles or projectiles from the Ukrainian war landed in Poland. There was some there was an explosion. Two Polish people died. It was relatively near the Ukrainian border. And no one is claiming that it was their missiles. Russia saying it wasn't us. Ukraine saying it wasn't us. The uh, Poland National Security Council met to discuss what, if anything, to do about this. Um, the Washington Post about a half an hour ago reported that uh, President Biden, even though he's in Indonesia, he uh, spoke by phone with the Polish president, Andrzej Duda, and they discussed what happened with this missile that um, hit in Poland, two people killed. Um, again, the governments are not really giving us a lot of information. We know that this phone call took place. Um, but nobody is still saying for sure where the missile came from. Russia keeps saying, wasn't us. Oh, oh, wasn't us. Unless the ordinance was completely destroyed in the blast. I don't understand how we could not have an answer. Or maybe we do have an answer. And behind the scenes, they're trying to work out a response. Because President Biden and all of NATO has said, if this war encroaches on NATO territory, you are going to get a NATO response. And that can't be good for anybody, that kind of escalation. One other thing, um, this morning it was reported that um, Republicans in the Senate were meeting behind closed doors to decide who was going to be the minority leader. It was like, yeah, don't worry about it, done deal. Mitch McConnell, he's got the votes. And then all of a sudden there were reports that maybe he didn't have the votes, that Rick Scott was going to challenge him. Josh Hawley, in one of those hallway interviews, said flat out today that he was not going to vote for Mitch McConnell to lead them again, that he felt Mitch McConnell was responsible for the poor um, turnout, the poor results of the midterm elections. 
and that he could not support him going forward. So everybody was like, ooh, what's going on? Well, the meetings are all behind closed doors. But when they broke up today, here's what Mitch McConnell said. This, again, reported it about an hour ago in the Washington Post. Um, Mr. McConnell said that his caucus had a rather lengthy and fulsome discussion, not only of the election, but about the way forward. He said, I think it's pretty obvious we may or may not be voting tomorrow, but I think the outcome is pretty clear. I want to repeat again, I have the votes. That's what Mitch McConnell said. I will be elected. The only issue is whether we do it sooner or later. And I think we'll probably have another discussion about that sooner or later tomorrow. So uh, whether it's bluster or whether it is a fact that indeed Mitch McConnell has the votes to be the minority leader in the Senate going forward, he wants us to think that. (laughs) That's what he wants us to know, by God. These upstarts, I've got the votes. Except that this morning the reporting was that the discussion was going to take place today And then they were going to meet tomorrow behind closed doors to vote. And now Mitch McConnell is saying they're going to have another discussion tomorrow. So what does that mean? What does that mean? If Mitch McConnell has the votes, what is there to discuss? I don't know. You know, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for him or empathy for him for that matter. Anyway, um, real quick before I uh, toss things over to Patty Vasquez, I want to remind you that um, Shelley Young from the Chopping Block and I will be talking turkey this Friday at 4 o'clock. So text me your turkey questions, your Thanksgiving cooking questions. Uh, We're going to do a, a kind of a turkey day hotline with Shelley and also get some of her Thanksgiving cooking tips this Friday. That is going to do it for me. Uh, Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I think um, we now get two good hours of Patty Vasquez. This is a thing we are just starting this week. Congratulations to Patty Vasquez on that. Woohoo! Yay! I will see you tomorrow at two. Until then, stay safe. Have a great evening. Good night. <laughs>